Welcome to the New America NYC podcast. This event was recorded on March 31st, 2016, and is titled American Amnesia, The War on Government and Getting Back to Prosperity, and features Jacob Hacker and Paul Pearson, co-authors of American Amnesia, Saski Assassin, author of Expulsions, Brutality and Complexity in the Global Economy, Kay Sabil Rahman, Fellow at New America, and Sheila Kolhatkar, Features Editor and National Correspondent of Bloomberg Businessweek. I want to be brief um, and uh, get the conversation started, um, but I have some words to say. We've been waiting for this day for a while, um, and you know what they say about book launches. It's uh, the calm before the calm. Um, and uh, <laughs> so, so I hope I, hope I, can, I can, you know, shake up that calm just a little bit. So, we, you know, we wrote Winner Take All Politics uh, a few years back. Um, because we were so concerned about rising inequality in the United States, and we believe government had an, uh, both uh, an essential role to play in dealing with that problem, but even more neglected was at the heart of the reason uh, rising political in and economic inequality uh, had this self-reinforcing negative effect on our society. Um, and when we started to uh, think about the role of government in winner-take-all politics, we just started scratching the surface of what we delved more deeply into in American amnesia, because in a lot of ways, the most powerful role that government uh, plays in our society in uh, the 20th century is a role that goes beyond um, the redistribution that most people associate with government. In fact, we were struck as we were writing this book that both conservatives and liberals uh, tend to see the government as mostly about redistribution. And you know, one side uh, favors that redistribution, the other side uh, doesn't like it, but there's this view of government as having this role of sort of taking from one group of people and giving to another. And in fact, as we started to look at this enormous transformation of our society in the 20th century, we came to realize that government has this just powerful positive sum role, um, one that has made all Americans vastly richer, vastly healthier, better educated, more capable of drawing on science and technical knowledge uh, than ever before. And uh, we were drawn to an image of this mixed economy that comes from one of Charles' mentors, uh, Ed Lindblom, Charles Lindblom, who taught at Yale for many years. And, and Charles Lindblom described the mixed economy as, as like a hand with the nimble fingers of the market and the strong thumb of government. And his point was that, you know, we wouldn't want to be all thumbs, right? That would be pretty awkward. But we also wouldn't want to be all fingers, that thumbs provide valuable counterpressure. They help us deal with some of the complex problems in an interdependent society that markets those nimble fingers can't deal with on their own. And we came to see the mixed economy as this amazingly recent, right? It's an invention essentially of the 20th century, amazingly recent social technology, and, and perhaps the most powerful transformative technology um, that, Amer that, uh, that humans have ever developed. And um, the ways in which it's changed our society are, I think, often neglected. One, one of them, which, um, which I think we, we too often forget, um, if I can make this happen, is how much cleaner our, our air and our water is than it was just uh, 30 or 40 years ago. This is Manhattan in 1966, um, the Manhattan skyline. And it looks a lot like contemporary Beijing. 
Um, and recently, the New York Times did a study of the changes based on uh, comparing the air in Beijing to um, the air uh, in the United States. They did a study of how many additional life, years of life, had come just from uh, the changes in our, uh, in our air quality since the 1970s due to the Clean Air Act and other innovations. And what they found was just remarkable, right? That in some cities, we were looking at five additional years of human life just because of these huge and powerful and, and positive changes. And there is one place uh, that has seen among the greatest changes, and that's Wichita, Kansas, the home of Coke Industries. Um, and I think it's just a reminder, right, that even libertarians get to breathe cleaner air. Um, <laughs> so this is just one of those, this is just one of those huge areas of progress. And in the book, we talk about many. We talk about the fact that throughout world history, we saw almost no growth. Right? We start here in AD 1, but you can go back farther, and I, I promise you the flat line continues. And then, right around 1900, we saw this enormous takeoff of growth. And it didn't come because capitalism suddenly emerged or that government suddenly emerged. Government coercion and capitalism predated uh, this enormous takeoff. What happened was we started using the thumb of government effectively alongside the nimble fingers of the market. And we see it in so many areas. We see it in health. This is life expectancy in the United States. We go back even further by looking at Great Britain. And again, what you see is just this transformative change around the time of the beginning of the 20th century. And this was deeply tied up with what government did, cleaning up uh, our, our water, uh, developing vaccines and antibiotics and, and medical knowledge and technologies. And in doing so, as in tobacco or cleaning up uh, our cities from, of lead that, uh, has led to, that led to enormous problems in which we still see, sadly, in Flint today, um, it fought powerful interests. The thumb had to push back against a market where the market wasn't capable uh, of acting effectively. So, so what happened? Right? Where, where have we gone? Because you can see at the very top, things start to get a little flat. And if you've been following recent news, you know we're not doing as well as we used to in translating uh, that, uh, that enormous potential of the mixed economy uh, into longer lives uh, and to higher incomes for ordinary Americans. And so Paul's going to talk a little bit about the transformation, uh, where it comes from, and where we might go. Thank you. Well, thanks. It's great to, great to be here. Um, I just want to echo all of Jacob's thanks and uh, add, add one for us, because uh, the other person who's here tonight, we, we actually dedicated this book to our, our teachers. Um, and uh, one, of our, one of our main teachers and mentors, Ted Marmer, is, is here, which is wonderful. Um, and uh, you know, I, th I think one of, the, one of the themes that emerges really strongly in the book is uh, that what makes a society prosperous more than anything else is the spread of education and science, right? Um, that we often celebrate and, and should celebrate the innovators who bring many of these fundamental developments to market, right? But it's a little bit like uh, Ann Richards' line about George Bush Sr., right, who was born on third base and thinks that he hit a triple. Um, and, you know, a lot of those innovators who, again, they do remarkable work, right? And, and, and what they accomplish, what they provide, it really should be celebrated. Um, but they don't start at home plate um, because of a vast amount of work 
uh, that government either does directly or supports in fundamental ways. Um, and that's the kind of balanced economy uh, that we talk about in the first half of, am of American amnesia. And, and we, we argue then, because we are political scientists, that that balanced economy required um, a balanced politics. Right? So that if we're, if we're seeing it slip away from us, if we're losing uh, the best opportunities for prosperity, not taking advantage of them, the basic argument we make is that that's happened um, because we've lost that balance in our politics. Um, in uh, the 1940s, there, the head of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, a man named uh, Eric Johnston, um, who was actually trying to modernize the Chamber of Commerce, it had been a very anti-New Deal organization in the 1930s, uh, and he was trying to make his peace with the New Deal and arguing for the Chamber having a more engaged role. And he described, in this, in this case he was talking about labor unions, but it really applied more generally to a lot of what came out of the New Deal. He said that it was a useful and established reality. And what he meant by that was, first of all, that a lot of the things that the New Deal had produced, whether it's Social Security or the expansion of labor unions, they were here and they were here to stay and they had to be reckoned with. Right? And business needed to respond to that. But also business had learned that much of what was built during this period and built in the progressive era was also useful. Right? It actually made um, the United States more prosperous. All right? but, then, but something has happened uh, since then that we explore in the second half of the book. Uh, so these, this is a father and son pair, uh, Mitt Romney and George Romney, um, both uh, business leaders, representative in many ways of the eras uh, in which they rose to prominence. Uh, both Republicans, both Republican candidates for president, uh, both uh, successful governors of blue states, um, but in many ways totally different, totally different in the way that they talked about government, uh, the way they talked about the relationship between government uh, and the economy. Right? So here's George Romney, uh, rugged individualism, it's nothing but a political banner to cover up greed. Uh, and a shot at the Goldwater wing of the party, I think a very prescient uh, shot at the Goldwater wing of the party about what happens uh, when extremism uh, takes and polarization take hold. Um, and, th and these are not just, you know, we're not cherry picking quotes here. If you look at Romney's uh, career, he was a fervent believer in the mixed economy and a believer in a close and supportive relationship between government and business. Uh, he was at one point when he was, uh, CEO of American Motors, he was offered a raise to a million dollars and he turned it down because he said it was too much. It's too much. Um, he was the head of a corporation that saw itself as very much embedded in a community, working with uh, other, other stakeholders um, in the success of that cor corporation. Okay, so by, by the time that you get to Mitt Romney, not so much. Okay, so there's the, the famous 47% quote uh, the other quote is actually from an episode that didn't get much attention, but to us and the way that we think about um, the, what we think is a healthier relationship between government and business is quite telling. He was responding uh, to a young man at a rally who asked him how he was going to be able to afford college. Um, and essentially, Romney told him to shop around uh, and not to expect the government to, to uh, give him any help. Um, and this is in a Republican primary, and the Republican... Uh, audience cheered because essentially they saw Romney as standing up to one of the takers. Um, but that is a terrible way, that is a terrible way to think about what our attitude towards people trying to uh, achieve a, a, a stronger education should be. Um, and we see it, it's, 
you know, we see it today, I know, in, in New York, uh, there are arguments going on right now involving a Democratic governor, right, about um, the financing of CUNY. And, uh, you know, it's really, you know, from our point of view, there's nothing more short-sighted uh, than the idea that helping people get to college um, is uh, some kind of zero-sum thing where if we help them do that, that's something that we lose and that they're taking, they're taking from us. All right, so, so these two men, uh, George and Met, uh, represent uh, three, I think, three interesting features of the world that's changed. One is a change in the economy in which finance uh, has come to be dominant in the way that corporations are organized and the way that they think about their relationship to the rest, uh, the rest of the United States, right? So corporations are not embedded in communities, right, where there are many stakeholders whose concerns need to be taken into account. Um, corporations are essentially financial entities that can be chopped up, reassembled, sold off, right? Um, if that seems to uh, generate the, the best uh, short-term payout. It reflects, in addition to that, the changing nature of business leadership, right? Rather than somebody working in one organization uh, throughout their career, as used to be the norm, um, uh, business leaders, too, are mostly trying to uh, make the quick killing, right, um, uh, and then move on. Uh, and the incentives that they get in terms of, you know, very high levels of executive pay, but also relatively short tenure, uh, have really, I think, taken away from the idea of business leaders acting as uh, statesmen, stateswomen who, who are, are thinking about uh, the long-term and the broader view of the prosperity of our economy. And it also relates, this transition from father to son relates to the stunning changes in the Republican Party um, as it has moved into fierce opposition uh, to the mixed economy, to the idea that government has a constructive role to play in our, in our economy. Uh, and we try to tell the story of that transition, uh, particularly looking at the evolution of the business community and the major business associations like the Business Roundtable and the Chamber of Commerce and the Koch Network in the book uh, and the amazing transformation of the Republican Party uh, that is on display uh, during this election year and actually many election years recently. The consequences um, are um, very widespread uh, of the rise of, the, of these forces. Uh, we see dysfunction in government, weakening capacity that leads to even more dysfunction, leading to more distrust and alienation from government um, and further reductions um, in, in government capacity. Uh, another effect that we talk about is uh, the way in which government has now become, and these forces of uh, the big business associations and the Republican Party have begun, become supportive of what we call the modern robber barons. So here's a picture of the Rhine River where the original robber barons were. Uh, the original robber barons would uh, stop shipping that was going down the Rhine River and demand their take if the boat was gonna be allowed to progress. And the result of that was uh, that you had um, a huge chokehold uh, on the growth of trade in uh, medieval Europe that had devastating negative effects for the economy. Right? Now we have modern robber barons. Right? We have powerful sectors of industry who have allies, the Chamber of Commerce, uh, it, uh, within the business community, uh, the Republican Party in many cases, who will advance the interest, the narrow interest of particular uh, economic sectors. The ones we focus on in the book are the fossil fuel industry, uh, healthcare providers, uh, and Wall Street finance, right? And in all these cases, I think you can make a very strong argument, we think we have strong arguments, to suggest that all of our prosperity is being, being damaged 
by the way in which these powerful interests are being enabled to essentially extract rents uh, from the rest of us uh, through their connections uh, to business associations and to the Republican Party. Uh, so that's, that's essentially the kind of evolution that has taken place over the period uh, that we look at in the second half of the book. Um, now, some people would say this is a pretty grim story. People always accuse us of writing grim books. Um, I remember when, uh, at, when Winner Take All came out, uh, a friend of mine was reading it, and he said, you know, I was reading your book, and at the same time I was reading Cormac McCarthy's The Road. And I, <laughs> you know, and I would read one for a while, and I would get really depressed, and so I would switch over to the other one, and, you know. But, but we, always, we always insist, actually, that we're optimists, and I think we actually feel like, in many ways, this is actually a very optimistic uh, book um, compared with a lot of stuff that's out there right now. But I'm going to save that for the conversation. I'll just leave that hanging out there uh, and saying the reasons why we're actually, we actually think that there's a lot of reason for optimism and that there are prospects um, for reforms that will get us back towards uh, better, a more balanced system that can produce uh, a greater prosperity. But a key element of that is going to have to be um, that we recover from this amnesia, that we uh, think again about um, what government really does and not see it as this sort of zero-sum zero, zero game in which, I'm going to get to thumbs in a second, um, <laughs> you know, in which um, some people are taking from others, right? But rather, it is this powerful social technology. You don't want government doing everything, but you need you need this interplay between government and markets uh, to bring out the best social capacities that you have, right? So that's Limblum's argument again. You need the strong fingers. Uh, you need the nimble fingers, but you also need the strong thumb. And I just want to emphasize uh, that the founders knew Alexander Hamilton. Uh, that's not Alexander Hamilton. Right? That's Alexander Hamilton, right? Um, they knew this. They knew this, right? Um, We've forgotten, among the things that we've got amnesia about is we have amnesia about the nation's founding. All right? So people go back now and they talk about the founding and it's all about you know, freedom from tyranny. So the story kind of goes, well, there was tyranny and there was the revolution and yada, 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 and then there was constitution. All right? But the yada, yada, yada part was the Articles of Confederation, which was a disaster, right? <laughs> There was no effective public authority, and it almost brought the fledgling nation to its knees. Right? And so not just Hamilton, but Madison and George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and all the other founders, that's why they were at the Constitution Convention, because they knew that you needed stronger political authority. So the people who today describe themselves as constitutional conservatives, they would have been anti-federalists. Right? They would have been the people on the other side of this conversation. They would, have been, uh, they would have been people who would have been saying, no, we don't need effective public authority. We just need government to get out of the way. You know, thank goodness they lost then, and we can only hope that they'll lose this time too. I'm going to quickly just introduce myself. My name is Sheila Kolhatkar. I'm a writer and editor at Bloomberg Businessweek. I write about Wall Street, hedge funds, financial crime, because you can't write about Wall Street without sometimes writing about financial crime, politics. I used to work at a hedge fund before I got into journalism. 
And uh, I would like to introduce my co-panelist, uh, Sabil Rahman, who's an assistant professor at Brooklyn Law School, also a fellow here at New America. He, uh, his first book is coming out soon, I think. Soon-ish. Yeah. Uh, democracy Against Domination, about how democracy can respond to disparities in economic power in light of the regulatory debates post-2008. And because he likes to f make people who haven't finished their first books feel bad, he's, got a, he's working on a second book already um, about how democratic participation is vital to addressing long-term economic inequality. So thank you for joining me here. And uh, I think we should sort of jump into one of the things that everyone is wondering about, which is what is going on in the presidential election. So um, I don't want to say it's just Trump. <laughs> Okay, so here it is, Trump. I'm putting him in your face. No, but so obviously the economic anxiety is bubbling up in all sorts of interesting ways. And um, I'm curious to know, you must have thought about this. What, how can you apply what you have developed and observed in your book to the crazy presidential race? Uh, so, Under-appreciates the degree of rise of Trump is only possible because of the kind of vacuum of responsible leadership governance that the Republican Party has. So there, the Republican Party has played a, a sort of dangerous game, pioneered by Newt Gingrich, directed by Mitch McConnell, of exploiting a lot of the weaknesses in our political. Oh, yeah, sorry. Thank you so much. Yeah, so um, the, uh, so the, the Republican Party has essentially um, re created this kind of self-reinforcing cycle that Paul mentioned where um, attacks on government, which at the time that these began under Newt Gingrich was in, under the control of, of the Democratic Party in Congress, um, have been used as a way of undermining um, their political opponents. And then in turn, uh, amazingly, they've managed to also gain electorally and politically from, uh, from the backlash that's resulted. And so I think that has been, that's sort of the backdrop that makes possible a candidate um, like uh, Donald Trump, right? Who represents not a sort of uh, call for, for, for better governance, but, a, but an attack on government and the governance uh, itself. The other thing I would just say about Trump, um, which is, I think, um, which we, we, we may have under, not appreciated fully when we were writing the book, um, is the extent to which there's also this, um, this feeling about government that is reflected in this kind of maker-taker uh, dichotomy that is, you know, that we saw to some extent picked up by the Tea Party, which is basically one that says, look, government, you know, it's not benefiting me, right? It's benefiting those other people, right? It's whether it's immigrants, uh, whether it's, um, you know, minorities. Um, and there's just no question that that kind of undercurrent of resentment is something that, that Trump himself has been able to, to tap into. But, but I think the deeper thing is just the kind of retreat from uh, governance of the party and the kind of widespread distrust within the Republican Party, but more broadly, that it's fostered. How, how bad is the economic state of this country? I mean, you, you hear a lot about how things are improving and unemployment 
has improved dramatically. However, when you really look at the fine print, it seems like you know the numbers that the government reports are not really reflecting the fact that there are many people who have just given up looking for work, for example. So obviously that's a big factor. People are feeling really insecure. So what, what is your sense of the economic health and the way it's going right now? Well, I, I think one thing that we would act, so here's one moment of optimism, right, which is that if you take a step back, take a long-term view, um, this country is so much more prosperous than it was at any prior point uh, in, in our history. I mean, what happened over the course of the 20th century, so you know, Jacob showed a few of the slides, the change in um, life expectancy, the change in income, the changes in educational attainment, they're really astonishing. Uh, and it's not like, I mean, there are now actually for a few, a few groups in the population, you know, that some people probably know about this recent study that came, the Case Deaton study that came out that showed life expectancy dropping uh, for um, white males in their in their 50s, more or less, um, at, with, who don't have college education, and you know that is that is a stunning development. But that's still a pretty that's that's a, a small subset of the overall of the overall population. Uh, you know the long term trends are still you know very positive. Uh, it's just that the rate of progress has slowed way down, way down, um, and it has slowed. It's not just slowed down compared to what was true. 30 years ago or 40 years ago, but slowed down compared with a, a lot of other countries that we like to compare ourselves with, right? Which are now, um, you know, racing ahead of us in terms of how many people are getting through college, how long people are living, and there are, and even middle class incomes where where the U.S. lead used to be the largest, that's that's really shrinking. So that's so you know so it, I think it is really important good news, and I think you know I think one thing we worry about a lot, and I think the maybe something we'll want to talk about, I think the media plays into this, is good news doesn't get broadcast very much, right? And, like, and the, you know, one of the, the real good news story that we tell in parts of this book, uh, it's like the perfect headline that you will never see appear in the paper, which is things are getting better, slowly, because of government, right? Um, but there are many, there are many, many like big deal stories like that. Um, so, you know, what's happened to, to the exposure of children to lead um, is, is an, a remarkable example of that. So, you know, what's happened um, in Flint is catastrophic and um, unforgivable in many ways, right, and revealing. Um, but we also should realize that almost all, if you go back 40 years ago, almost all American children had levels of lead exposure that were much, much higher than those children in Flint have been exposed to, right? And then we outlawed uh, lead and gasoline, and we outlawed lead and paint, right? Um, and the effects were dramatic. We still had, the, 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 the tragic part of it is that there is still much to be done. There's still much more to be done than there should be. We could do something, we, we've been slowing down our efforts to fix things. Um, but but the, the degree of progress, um, and the degree of progress in poor urban neighborhoods in particular, um, it, over the last 50 years has been astonishing. So, so, so I, want, I want to ask a, a question about a sort of another parallel part of the story. So one of the most interesting parts about the book is um, the, the unpacking or the tracing of the shift within the right, right? The move from a, a, a uh, conservative party and a business lobby that is 
more or less on board with the idea of the mixed economy that then transforms by the modern era. Uh, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts about what's the parallel story on the left, right? Because there are a couple moments in the book where you allude to, um, you, know, you gesture towards the idea that government needs to be bigger, not just smarter, right? And you know that for a long time in the 90s, part of the progressive attempt to respond to uh, the critiques uh, from the right was to accept that government should be smaller, but try to make government more efficient, smarter, right? So I'd be curious to sort of, if you knit together, there are times where it seems like you have a story about what's happening on the left that's a parallel to what's happening on the right. Yeah, I mean, I think the transformation of the Democratic Party is, is profoundly important in this story. And um, in many ways, it is... Um, it is a revealing contrast to the changes in the Republican Party for two reasons. One, um, you know, there's a standard view, right, which is that, you know, if you believe, as we do, in a mixed economy and you think that the Republican Party is tearing it down, then you have this view of them wearing black hats. And so you might think, oh, well, the Democrats have, the, you know, the white hats on. But no, the Democrats have gray hats, you know, and sometimes they're pretty dark gray. And the reason is, and why it's a revealing contrast, is it allows you to see how the shifts, not just in the business community, but in the discourse and ideas around government, really got uh, pushed Democrats into this self-reinforcing um, um, spiral of silence, right? Where it was unpopular to talk about government and no individual politician had a strong uh, reason to do so. And so in accepting that the era of big government is over, um, you know, the, the, there, was, there was no investment in a kind of positive conception. And, you know, that's not an argument that if one politician stood up and started talking about government in a more reasonable way, I mean, we do have one, actually, who's doing a bit of it now, um, that that's going to change the discourse. But when, in, when you've got one side that's invested for 30 or 40 years in tearing down government and changing people's views of it, and then you have another side which is essentially fleeing, uh, and which is seriously cross-pressured by the economic trends that we write about. So the one thing I would say is that we are not at all in this book saying that rising inequality isn't just a fundamental fact and that the overall aggregate economic growth makes, it makes a huge difference whether or not that's going to, you know, disproportionately to the top uh, 1% and top 0.1% or going broadly across the population as was true during the heyday of the mixed economy. So we're not denying that, that inequality is just this powerful force because it has meant that, that, that business elites who are in this top echelons are more and more distant from the rest of Americans and they have more and more of a sense that their prosperity comes from their own you know, hard work and creative uh, uh, you know, invention as opposed to as, as business leaders tended to see it in an era when labor was stronger and incomes were less unequal as a partnership right, uh, with, um, with labor and government and, and larger stakeholders in the economy. So we're not at all denying that. But we are saying, and I think this is where um, our book is departing in some respects from what we said before, we are saying that the ideas here are just fundamental, uh, much more so than we recognized in our previous work. And it's because it's been reinforced by this structural shift in our economy. Just, just quickly, I would add, there, there's no question that the spectacular shift in the income distribution towards the, you know, Occupy Wall Street had it wrong. It's not the one, it's not we are the 99%. It should be we are the 99.9% or 99.99%. I mean, it's really just astonishing how concentrated the gains have been. You know, that's had a huge effect on the Democratic Party, too. 
Um, and it, but it, but but quite a quite different one than the than the Republican Party. I think the Democratic Party is. That's why we say they have gray hats. They um, they're cross pressured, right? Um, but there is no question that many of the traditional concerns of Democrats and ones that maybe, and I think this comes back to something that you were you were asking about before, Sheila. Is, um, uh, you know, the amount of economic anxiety out there in the sense that it's clear on both sides of the political spectrum that, um, that the system is, is in the hands of the elites, right, and it's not responsive to things that are going to help me. Um, you know, that, that it clearly is, is, for understandable reasons, at play in both political parties and is, and is uh, connected to this rising inequality as well as the other things that we've been talking about. Well, so, oh, uh, well I'm just on this uh, anxiety uh, point, I mean, in some ways to, to your to the optimism of the book and of the book coming out at this particular moment, right? Um, one of the interesting things reading your book was thinking about the current moment and also thinking about the, the prehistory of the mixed economy. You, you, you guys put the start at, at Wilson, Woodrow Wilson, right, in 1912, 1913, rather than FDR, which is, which, is, which is a really important move, right, because that's the moment at which American society is first grappling with the same, these same kinds of anxieties about uh, about crony capitalism, about robber barons, uh, about party, a party system that's not responsive. Uh, and so I think kind of there's, this is a, a well-timed uh, intervention as well, we're trying to figure it out. Well, we were shocked to find out that um, Woodrow Wilson has become the kind of bogeyman of, of a certain uh, segment of, of, conser of the conservative intelligentsia, right? And not just Glenn Beck, um, George Will gave a speech at the Cato Institute where he said Wilson... Uh, you know, was the was the worst president the world had ever ever, um, and also uh, that he had ruined the 20th century. Um, which I think, you know, there are many reasons that one should have reservations about Woodrow Wilson uh, and his presidency. But um, the, the the reservations the, that that Will has are about creating the Fed and uh, in modern income tax system and uh, uh, the regulatory powers to manage the the those the, the last gen you know the, that period's uh, robber barons, um, not his his retrograde and horrible views on race and and then just to say it just. Think about what it means to say ruin the 20th century. I mean, if there's if there's any any century that if you look at these uh, at these slides that produced um, increases in the welfare of ordinary citizens, it was the 20th, right? And it is very revealing that there is a, a group of uh, of critics of the mixed economy that look not to the 1930s as the break point. But at, uh, but at, uh, at Woodrow Wilson's presidency, and indeed we write about some who think really things went uh, terribly wrong, you know, uh, in the uh, in the late 19th century, um, and some right who worry about the con you know who 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 worry about the uh, the Constitution um, as being uh, the step the bad step. So it almost sounds like a bit of a public relations problem or something. I mean, you have, so again, I'll mention another Republican candidate, Ted Cruz. I think he has a list of six or seven government agencies. He wants, he's promised he's just gonna shut down education, the EPA, it goes on. I think the IRS. The IRS, yeah, that'll be great. I wanna say more about the IRS, yeah. but go on. Well, yeah, so yeah, I, I guess the sort of obvious question is why, I mean, they are finding a receptive audience in some circles for these really extremist, anti-government messages. And th that explains the Trump thing too. So why do you think the numbers of people who are responding to this are responding? Because they do seem to be succeeding at least at this stage of the process. 
Well, uh, of course, you know, one of the things that I think is, is really interesting to keep in mind is that most people don't actually want to see the EPA abolished. <laughs> you know, most people are actually feel pretty good about the EPA. Um, and so, you know, if you actually, I mean, there, there are conservative Republicans who, who think that. Um, but I don't think, you know, we'll see if, if, you know, Cruz turns out to be the nominee, we'll see how, how popular that particular appeal is. On my view is that it won't be popular. Um, and, um, uh, but abstract attacks on government are extremely popular. Um, and, um, and that partly has to do with some of the, but, but so, so voters actually are a little schizophrenic about this kind of stuff. They actually value most of the things that government does. Um, and most of the pro most of the prominent programs, they value them a lot, um, but but that doesn't actually carry over to the the kind of conversation that you can have about government, and that's that's something that we're starting to put uh, trying to put back on the table. Uh, I can't remember whose line it is we quoted in the book as saying that there was this um, the bargain a bargain at the beginning of American political history that put Jefferson in charge of rhetoric and Hamilton in charge of policy, right? <laughs> Um, and that's, you know, that's, that captures a lot, right? And, but it turns out that's actually a problem, right, for sustaining public support in the long run. Um, the other thing I just want to, I, I, I just want to make sure that we don't leave people, leave people with a misconception about, about the argument of the book, because we've been talking a lot about ideas and discourse, and we do think those things are fundamentally important. Um, but as, as we argued in, in our last book, um, we do think that underpinning this transformation is a fundamental shift in the balance of power, right, in American society, right? So, um, you know, that, that it's, there's been a decline, there's been a decline of small d democracy in a lot of ways, right? The, the, the mounting economic inequality has carried over into political inequality in a way um, that has really undermined uh, many of the achievements that were a result of small d democracy, right? So again, that's why we talk about this long progressive era that included uh, Teddy Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson and FDR, right? And, and an amazing amount of that carried over into the 50s and 60s uh, where uh, business leaders and Republicans, all, almost all the prominent, I mean, Barry Goldwater was an outlier at the time. Right. And you look at most of the leading Republican figures in the 1950s and 1960s, and they were, they were quite comfortable um, with, with the mixed economy. But that was, that was their response to a shift in the distribution of political power in the other direction. Right? So, so I don't want to, you know, when we talk about how we all think and talk about these things, which I do think is, is really important, we don't want to lose sight of the fact um, that um, labor unions have been decimated um, over the past uh, generation, um, and um, big money has become much more prominent in the halls of Washington. Look, Seville might have well, something no, to add say, on and, this point. Yeah, well, and, and just, I mean, the, uh, uh, it was the vibrancy of a lot of the rise of these movements in the early part of the progressive era, right? When you have the emergence of the labor movement in the first place, the emergence of the consumer rights movement, um, the emergence of uh, the populist and progressive movements as uh, sort of broad political movements building power through civil society organizations of the kind that you document on the right in the, uh, in the late 20th century, that that's what sort of produces the shift in political power and the shift in ideas that creates the mixed economy, right? And so the story that you, you guys are telling is sort of the, the inverse story of right. what, you know, the wave that Wilson was then riding on that had already started some decades prior. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And, and just want to say, I mean, one of our arguments at the end of the book, we really talk a lot about what can be done. And 
we try to, to return to that theme by saying that you don't get responsible elites because they wake up one day and decide, look, you know, I've actually been looking at the world the wrong way. I mean, you know, Alan Greenspan said his model of the world was wrong, but so far as I can tell, he hasn't gone out and tried to, to give us a better model, right? And the fact is that for the most part, change comes about because people get pushed to do it. They get pressed, they have face constraint, right? And in a, in a, in a way, I mean, the theme of this book is that our freedom to a significant extent rests on certain kinds of constraint, right? And that's true of the mixed economy, right? Which, you know, regulations that reduce pollution or that re discourage smoking, right? They're, they're, they're limits on freedom, right? But they're also hugely welfare enhancing and actually liberty enhancing. And at the same time, uh, we argue that, you know, historically, Elites, business elites, economic elites have come to the table in a constructive way when they face constraint, right? And the question is, how do you recreate that constraint in an era in which labor doesn't have the same kind of role it once did? And I think a big part of our argument is that you've got to get more people engaged. You've got to get um, more, um, more organizational strength behind them. This is something, of course, you've written much about. And you've got to start a kind of virtuous cycle to replace the vicious cycle that we're describing today because it's very hard to see how you do that when people think the government, that you know, the vehicle of progressive reform government is, is viewed with such discredit. And this, just the last thing, I think the small d democratic uh, point is, is, is a really important point of distinction from uh, a lot of other defenses of government which don't necessarily root it in that kind of grassroots engagement, right? There, where it's just a pure technical policy right. argument, right? Which is not the argument that you guys are making. Yeah, yeah, we've gotten some really, we were in Washington and one thing that really struck me is that a lot of the people there who are concerned about these issues feel as if part of the problem is that in response to some of these trends that um, progressives have adopted this amazingly technocratic approach, right? Um, and, the, and the signal case of this um, that really shows how policy design can really influence politics is the stimulus, right? So the biggest portion of the stimulus, the plurality of it was tax cuts for middle-class people that nobody saw, right? Because they were just, you know, increased um, money in your paycheck because of reduced withholdings. The whole idea was that people would spend that money because they didn't recognize it. But it's a real problem when two years later, you know, 99% of Americans don't think there was a tax cut, right? And so the political scientist Suzanne Mettler has written about this, that you have, like, you have to think about how government can be used in a way that it's both visible and popular, right? Social Security is visible and popular, right? Nobody's running around screaming, oh, I'm being forced to save for my retirement. This is so awful, right? Because they love the program and they recognize the program. Now, what's the, what are the options for us in the, in, in, in the next era for those kinds of, those kinds of measures? So. I was wondering if you could, you do a really nice job in the book of sort of going through the history of just sort of the post-industrial revolution economy of the United States. And, um, you know, you, you sort of chart the, the incredible breakthroughs in medicine and education and all these areas that just would not have been possible without government investment support, you know, intervention of some kind. Could you give us just a couple of highlights of what those were? Because they're quite interesting and vital, I think. Yeah, the, I mean, the list is very long. And again, I want to I want to come back to um, this theme that we talked about before, which is that prosperity, economic prosperity, is driven more than anything else by increases in education and science, right? So it's not that 
the job creators are investing their capital. That's important, right? That, that is important. But, you know, economists have demonstrated, Robert Sola won the Nobel Prize for demonstrating that you just can't explain the spectacular economic growth that we get from, like, the units of capital and the units of labor uh, that were put in. It's that technological development made it possible to do much, much more with that capital and labor, right? So, so the developing a highly educated workforce um, and, um, and supporting basic science and building the infrastructure on which more science can happen, absolutely fundamental. Um, we wrote a piece in theAtlantic.com the other day about Andy Grove, who was a longtime CEO of Intel, who died recently, um, much celebrated, you know, one of the, one of the fathers of um, Silicon Valley and um, amazing, amazing entrepreneur, right? amazing innovator, but somebody who always recognized how important government was to what, what had happened in his life and what had happened um, in Silicon Valley. Um, you know, he'd come to New York as a refugee from, from Europe, had gotten, um, you know, essentially a free education at CCNY, where he'd excelled even though he was uh, partially deaf and spoke very little English, and had gone from there to a PhD program at UC Berkeley, right, uh, where he had also excelled, also heavily subsidized education, uh, and then had gone off to... Um, uh, to Fairchild in Silicon Valley, which was, you know, the, the incubator company for much of what happened there, but was a company that would have been impossible, would not have existed without the defense contracts, right? The, the defense, it was the defense industry that was interested in those, those techno developing those technologies and made it possible for that to happen. Um, so, um, and you can just run down the list uh, with, with uh, medicine, medical developments, um, the iPhone, you know, almost every... Part of the iPhone uh, originally comes from uh, from government financed research, uh, so you know the list is, is bottomless. So, how do you counter the argument that I hear a lot from Silicon Valley types that uh, government somehow impedes or interferes with this idea of innovation, and they will point to countries like Canada, which where I grew up actually. Uh, where there's a lot more sort of interplay between the public and private sectors. But, you know, people in Silicon Valley might say, well, there is no Steve Jobs. You know, Steve Jobs didn't come out of Canada. Why is that? What's your response to that argument? Well, I think... <laughs> or is it just wrong? I think, well, you know, it's very telling, right? And we have a quote from... Um, and I never will say his name right, Paul Pattaya, is that right? Who is the co-owner of the Golden State Warriors and was a tech entrepreneur. And he was at a Silicon Valley function and he said, you know, if government shut down, you know, if corporations shut down, the world would end, basically. But if government shut down tomorrow, no one would care because nothing would happen. And, you know, and it's worth pointing out that if government had shut down in the post-war era, there would have been no Silicon Valley, there would be no internet, there would be no iPhone, there would have been no GPS. But... You know, you do hear these arguments that today, right, as a mature, you know, Silicon Valley is this mature industry that, does, that doesn't rely on government. And I would just say two things here, because it, we could say a lot more. Um, the first is that Silicon Valley, right, is one of these agglomeration, innovation, knowledge hubs, right, where people come together and it works because of the interaction of individuals in these places. And that's heavily path dependent, right? So if we make those investments at one point in time, Right in the future, right, we get to be the place where that happens, and that's a good a good thing because that's precisely the kind of of 
long-term investments that we need to be making and we're not making, right? So, you know, research and development spending has, has been crushed uh, in recent uh, years. We're not uh, keeping up with other countries and getting kids through college. Um, we're not, you know, Canada actually does much better than us in thinking about immigration and high school immigration in particular. By the way, Canada also, I just like Canada, so let's not, let's not diss I'll Canada. We, we, will say, we will say also that Canada has, a very, um, uh, uh, has managed to maintain a high rate of, of unionization in the same global economy, the same economic structure more or less as the United States. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is they're just wrong, right? So where are those educated workers going to come from, right? And what is going to make possible the next breakthroughs, right? Uh, and it's, it's clear to us, and I think clear to those like Andy Grove who are more reflective about this, right, that there's an enormous and positive role for government. And the, the person who we talk about in the book, who I think both illustrates both sides of your point, right, um, or your point and my point, is um, this guy, Vannevar Bush. Um, and I don't know how many know, you know who he is, but he's really a, a pivotal figure in American history, sort of forgotten today. He was an MIT scientist who ran the Department of Defense's scientific enterprises, ran the Manhattan Project, helped create the National Institutes of Health, the National Science Foundation. He was a conservative Republican. Um, and he didn't think that science should be directed by government, and like Andy Grove and a lot of other technologists, he didn't want government meddling in, micromanaging um, private uh, industry. What he wanted, right, was that basic fuel of prosperity. But we can't run on the fumes of this last generation's investments. Van Ever Bush was right, um, and he was, I think, a real sign that that's what the mixed economy rested on, this broad understanding of the need for those kinds of investments. I think there's, and the other, Art, which is in, in the book as well, is the, this, the whole idea of productive constraint. That constraint is, the con constraint drives a certain kind of innovation and productive economic activity. And, and, you know, Woodrow Wilson's chief economic advisor is Louis Brandeis, who then ends up on the Supreme Court. And his whole idea was that you need regulation to enable market competition, right? To prevent the robber barons from locking down, creating monopolies, and preventing the emergence of the new creative innovative next thing. Uh, so it's in addition to the investment yeah, piece. Yeah, yeah, and just, I mean, to, you know, one point that I think is really important to emphasize, and, you know, one thing that, that we have been accused of, could be accused of, oh, you're nostalgic. You know, you want to take us back to the 1950s. So again, I've already said, like, things are better now <laughs> in, in most, you know, it's, I don't want to get in the time machine and go back uh, to the 1950s. And uh, we face different problems. Um, and we need a different kind of government. We need a different kind of mixed economy. But that doesn't mean we need less government. You know, if anything, we probably need more, and certainly of, of certain types, right? Um, because we live in a much more complex, much denser, much more interdependent world than we did. Um, and I mean, there's an obvious case, right? So if you read the New York Times yesterday, um, you, um, you probably saw the front page story that suggested that New York City is about 400 years old um, and it probably will not see another 400 years. Um, unless we really get cracking because because of the sea level because of sea because of sea level rise. Well, we're on, okay, so, so this is an example. So another reason why, so anyway, my point is there are, there are huge things that you need government to deal with that markets are not gonna deal with and, and it's not, and, and, in fact, and in fact, if you just let the markets rip, they're going to create the problems, right? So this, the, you know, the, the, the most 
the scariest of all the robber barons, right, is the fossil fuel industry, right, in terms of, and that's just a clear case where um, they, in, in our view, they are extracting rents in a massive way because there is not enough regulation about um, the, you know, the, the catastrophic pollutants that they're, that they're putting into the atmosphere, right? So you need, and that is not, a, markets cannot solve that problem. It's the greatest market failure in human history, right? As a World Bank economist famously called it, right? So, um, so you need government to do, it's not, it's not about going back to the 50s, it's about developing uh, an appropriate mixed economy for the 21st century. Well, so there's, there are a few lines in your book, and I'll read, um, I'll read one choice line here. Congress is so unpopular that Americans say they prefer head lice and root canals to their elected legislature. And uh, so we all know there's this complete sort of gridlock situation, and um, you, you raise this fossil fuel question. I mean, yes, regulation is required, but there's a complete inability for, you know, for anyone to pass any legislation or change anything due to lobbying, the influx of money. So what, what is to be done about this? It seems like a really serious, scary problem, and there seems to, there's no and, sign of improvement. Yeah, yeah and, it, and it is. And, and um, you know, one thing that I think we think it's really important for people to realize is that gridlock is not neutral. Right. Um, if the government is immobilized, right, um, that is bad news for people who think that you actually need effective government. Right. It's not neutral between the parties. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and the fact that people are completely cynical and alienated from government, that's also not neutral. Right. So, you know, the idea that, you know, we're, we're people who know our work, you know, we, we are very big critics of the pox on both their houses view right, of what's happened to the American political system, which is not to say that there aren't lots of things to blame Democrats about, um, but we do think that um, there's one side that's been pushing a lot of this and that sees real benefit from pushing a lot of, the, a lot of this stuff and that, you know, that people need to recognize that. Now, um, you know, in the short, and so just, and just on this case, yeah, so climate, the cap and trade bill was stymied because we have a system that encourages gridlock. You know, the filibuster is a huge problem, though the filibuster could be changed, right? If you had a, a committed majority, they could get rid of the filibuster. You only need 50, 51 votes to do that. Um, but it's, you know, we should recognize actually the Obama administration has done a lot. The EPA has actually done a lot on these issues. Now, some of that is hung up in the courts. So what, you know, in the, you know, how the court, you know, the courts now in our gridlock world turn out to be incredibly important. So, you know, who's gonna get that seat that replace uh, Justice Scalia? That's gonna, that's gonna turn out to really, you know, that's gonna matter for Citizens United. Um, it's gonna matter for a lot of things. Um, but I wanna, you know, I keep, I keep been saying that, you know, that we have these optimistic ideas. So one, one point of optimism uh, that we have that, that Plays into, plays into the question that you're asking is um, it's the flip side of the fact that we've been doing less well, right? It, there's a lot of money on the table. There's a lot of money on the table. If you could mobilize to really take on the modern robber barons, um, there are huge opportunities for positive sum gains, right? So healthcare, for example, we, you know, we just hand over huge amounts of money to the healthcare industry, right? We spend, you know, roughly, you know, pick your number, but it's, I don't know, somewhere between five and 8% of GDP uh, that we spend more than anybody else does to, not to get better outcomes, right? And not because we're especially intensive in the way that we use healthcare, because we're actually not, 
right? We just pay higher prices, right? So, and somebody's getting that money, and actually Ted Marmer, I remember the first thing he taught me about, about healthcare politics was that healthcare spend as an equation, you know, healthcare spending equals healthcare incomes, right? So it's not easy to take on those robber barons, but it does suggest possibilities for positive sum political coalitions, right? There are a lot of opportunities to make most Americans better off, right? Healthier, higher incomes, living longer lives, better educated. You know, these are, these are obtainable things. You know, the, the, the challenge is going to be, you know, for, and especially it's a challenge in the cynical age, right? And where that cynicism is being fed and where our institutions in many ways reinforce that cynicism because they, they really weren't designed to tackle, you know, you know, bless Alexander Hamilton, but they really weren't designed um, to, uh, to handle a polarized uh, style politics that we have. Um, they weren't thinking about political parties so much at the time. Um, but the fact that there are these opportunities, there's a lot of money on the table, um, that's an important thing in politics, that you can, you can actually offer lots of people uh, things that would make them better off. I think, and I think it also sort of speaks to uh, the different channels that politics could take, right? So politics is hydraulic. When, there's, when pressure builds up and when it can't go through one channel, it finds other pathways. And um, you know, so Congress is blocked. What's interesting about it is if you think about sort of the, the politics of the era of Wilson, a large part of that was an effort not just to create the mixed economy, but to create other political channels to get around the capture, a thorough capture of the system. And so that's why you have the Federal Reserve and the SEC and the FTC. And that's why you have cities that now have policymaking power independent of state governments. All of that comes out of the progressive era, right? Because they had the same notion that we need, gov we need government to do stuff. But in order to do stuff, we need other ways to make government responsive to the people. And so we build new institutions to make that happen. And I think you're seeing some of that already today in terms of where the action is. It's in, it's in the EPA, it's in city governments. Uh, some of that is, I think, already happening. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And you know, I, I, don't, I, I wanna take that optimistic note and keep, and keep pushing it further, but I do wanna say that I think you know, when you look at something like climate change, you're reminded yeah, you what, the the founders, yeah. what the founders thought, which was, they believe, you know, and, and I believe in a pluralistic system, but you also, there are areas where the federal authority is paramount and, and climate change is one of them. But, but you know, we, we talked just briefly about climate change and I just want to say, you know, the cap and trade is, is somewhat complex, but it's still a pretty straightforward thing. A carbon tax is really simple, right? It's just making people pay basically the social cost of carbon. It's internalizing the externality as economists would put it. So one thing that people have said to us is, well, if the world is more complex, then government must not, isn't gonna be able to handle that. Only those, you know, uh, those um, uh, farsighted entrepreneurs can do it. And the, and the fact is, yeah, sometimes, but in a lot of cases, what you need is actually pretty straightforward, right? You just need that thumb to say, okay, you're gonna have to pay the, the social cost of, of carbon. And the other thing that Paul was saying about healthcare is that it, it, it's not that, you know, we think that government is much more than spending. And so when people say, do you want a bigger or smaller government? They always mean, oh, how much of GDP is government going to represent? And that's not the way we think about it. But I can say that a lot of what we think needs to be done isn't going to cost us more money. In fact, it's going to save us money. And um, it's not... It, we're going to have to make big investments to deal with the deferred maintenance and infrastructure in other areas. But in other areas, we're going to save a lot of money because we're not going to be handing it off uh, to concentrated private interests. And so that's, I think, another encouraging thing. Um, and I think it's a, it's a way of getting past some of this is a rampant pessimism uh, that we have today about the capacity for political reform. 
So maybe we probably have time just for one last quick point. But so who do you think, I mean, I know who you think, but who, who best embraces this mixed economy idea? Who's going, to, who's going to advance this notion for us if it's not Donald Trump? Oh, we're not, you know, I, I, I it's think. It's not Donald Trump. It's not Ted Cruz. Yeah, I mean. Is there anyone who? That's the right well, idea. So, so we we had a piece online in the Times recently that um, that talks about you know that, that talks about Hillary Clinton suggesting that um, in some ways she's you know the the view of her as a narrow pragmatist with no um, with no vision um, reflects a lot of uh, the kinds of uh, transformations that we've been talking about, right? The, what I think her policy agenda is, is focused on are things that are, you know, mostly well within the kind of tradition that we've been talking about, which is faded, right? It's like, it's not about government replacing markets. It's about government, you know, working more effectively to deal with, you know, sometimes alongside of and sometimes by, by putting up some resistance um, to, you know, a system that's going to rely pretty heavily on markets. And that actually is a, that's a, a vision that is, you know, at a minimum, very, very respectable and has um, a long tradition, has a lot going for it. It's a very pragmatic, I would say it's a very pragmatic tradition, but not pragmatic in the sense of just being, um, you know, uninterested in, in idealism, but pragmatic in the sense of let's do what works, right? Um, and, but, but obviously the, the thing that the Sanders campaign brings to the table, which we, you know, we clearly think is extremely important, is this vicious cycle between political inequality and economic inequality um, that makes it very hard um, for, um, for government to play even that kind of role, that, 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 you know, that, that role that is maybe you know, less transformative, more, uh, more incremental, more reformist, um, more grounded in compromise, you know, the, the, the kind of acute levels of political inequality and economic inequality that we've got now make it, make it hard to execute even that, um, that more modest vision. And I think you're seeing sort of the, op kind of on an optimistic note, it's exactly the kind of uh, payoffs of a civic engagement that I think you guys were talking about, that uh, the, the force of the Sanders campaign has changed the conversation Absolutely. significantly. Yeah. Right. No, and I think that's right. And so the, the pressure that's coming, I mean, you go back to the progressive era and you see this as well, that the pressure that's coming from um, forces to the left, let's say, um, are just absolutely essential for creating the space within which you have this, this more uh, moderate government um, governance. I mean, Paul put it to me a long time ago in a very in a way that we never made it into the book because we aren't quite sure how to say it. But he said, you know, we're going to have to have some really radical changes to get moderate outcomes. That's just not going to appeal. Like, way, let's go for that. You know, that's great. But it's true, right? We're a really far away from uh, the kind of governance, right, that involves the compromise and give and take that marked our remarkable economic ascent. And was still a part, I think, of our politics, um, you know, certainly during my lifetime, and, and in certain respects as late as the early 1990s when, you know, George H.W. Bush supported uh, the Clean Air Act amendments and the Americans with Disabilities Act. You know, we have, even in that period, American politics is radically transformed and that we are wrong to see, um, to see this as somehow this is the, the reality of American politics from 1975 on is just this horrible polarization and horrible incapacity of government. It's gotten worse and we need to fix it now. And we wrote the book because 
we believe that this is the most pressing challenge that we face. Because without some faith in government, we're not gonna address inequality, we're not gonna address climate change, and we're not gonna make Americans' lives longer and healthier and more prosperous. And you know, there's something idealistic that we should all be standing for here. And it's not a government that, um, that, uh, that governs least. It's a government that governs best. And to govern best, it's gonna have to govern quite a bit. In happy note. Okay, well, thank you. <laughs>